Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, this is one of those weeks where the world feels a little uh, precarious to me. You know what I mean? There's some big things that could break one way in Russia and Iran where the world could be a better place. It could break a different direction. Things would go a little uh, a little south. I don't know. I thought you were I'm talking. On edge. I thought you were talking about the Mets. Um, Sorry about that. But uh, that was a tough, to post, v- albeit brief, postseason. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just have you, like, we've talked sports. My favorite sport is baseball. My favorite team is the Mets, and they can find new ways. Like y- you never think there's a new way they're going to find to lose, and, or just torture you. Guys. Yeah, losing a ten and a half game division lead. Getting swept by that team, the Braves, to lose the division where mm-hmm. you only had to win one game, mm-hmm. and then losing at home to the Padres was not. Are you gonna get Aaron Judge? Uh, at this point, like I don't even care. I'm just so. Oh no! You know, like, You're uh, in the nihilist but I'll, phase. By February, this is what baseball does. It gives you the whole winter to convince yourself that it's worth caring about it again. Yeah. Well, though the Patriots are starting our third string quarterback, and I'm getting into it. So and looking the, the good. Bailey Zapiera like has yeah. started. But back to my existential anxiety about the world. No, you're then. right about the world. The world. Uh, the world. That too. It's uh, it's <laughs> balanced on a precipice. Yeah. Uh, we're going to start with some of these big balancing issues. So updates from Russia and Ukraine, including the bombing of a bridge to Crimea. In the Russian response to that, uh, we'll cover how these women-led protests across Iran have grown, why a decision by OPEC is leading the U.S. to rethink the U.S.-Saudi relationship. British Prime Minister Liz Trust is setting records. She's making history. We'll explain why. Elon Musk just won't shut up. Uh, and then we'll do some quicker updates and uh, some international scandal news. We love an international scandal here. Always. And then, always. Ben, you go deep uh, in an interview today with a... a lifelong friend of the pod at this point. I think we can, you know, Kevin Rudd, former prime minister of Australia, definitely a friend of the pod, uh, came by in person and we went deep on China's upcoming election. Uh, Not a lot of suspense about who's going to win that election. (laughs) The party conference there with Xi Jinping, what it means, some of the problems China's having. uh, COVID is not going well. COVID. The worst numbers since like 2020, right? Yeah. And the economy not going well, like a lot of headwinds there. Um, and also because uh, we have a particular interest in Australian politics on this podcast, mm. we give former Labor uh, Prime Minister Kevin Rudd the chance to dunk on uh, the Scott Morrison's and Tony Abbott's of the world. Oh, That's I love that! Yeah. I can't wait to hear. And that. Rupert Murdoch, you know, any question to Kevin Rudd about Australian politics ends up being a conversation by Rupert Murdoch, which is good. I mean, I do think that you know, like in conversations about foreign policy in the last twenty years, you kind of can't go back to the Iraq War enough as being sort of the the genesis of all kinds of bad things. Yeah, you really can't, I think, overstate the degree to which Rupert Murdoch and his family have just destroyed politics in multiple continents and the planet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks yeah. for that, guys. Yeah. Also, Crooked is bringing you the election coverage you love to hate via Crooked Radio. We're, we're taking over every weekend 
on SiriusXM Progress uh, in the SiriusXM app. You'll hear our hosts, candidates, experts more, including Pod Save the World, on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out, channel 127, or subscribe now and get up to four months free of SiriusXM. See site for details at SiriusXM.com slash crooked. Also, real quick, for fans of the podcast, Wind of Change, they are back for a bonus episode. Patrick heard the Scorpions were coming to town last month, so he went to a show. Check it out. It's super fun. We all love the show, and it's so nice to have them back in my ears. Uh, I do hope listeners will check out my new show, World Corrupt. It is currently sitting in your Pod Save the World feed, so you really don't have to do much. You just have to click it at some point. It's about FIFA, the corrupt body that oversees international soccer, and how they awarded this year's World Cup, which happens in November, to Qatar. They gave the 2018 World Cup to Russia, so banner showing there for for them. Raj and I, we wrestle with how we as fans can watch these games and these sports that we love while knowing that they are being distorted by big money, these gulf autocrats who are buying teams. We talked to a, a bunch of human rights experts that you'll love. We talked to inspiring players like Megan Rapinoe, talk about the history of FIFA, the history of sports washing going back to like really World War II or before that. Uh, and then we talk about what we all can do uh, as fans to help the people who have been harmed. And it's a really fun show. It is totally in the world, though, wheelhouse. Roger is the best. My wife literally said to me uh, after listening to the first episode, you guys finally cracked the code on podcasting. Just have Roger talk. I'll listen to him say anything. And I said, I love you, too. I mean, how am I supposed to take that, Hannah? I, you know? It's a I mean, tough I, shot. I, I've been talking to you on a podcast for like uh, years now. Well, but, but I do. It hurts. I have to, you know. I have to acknowledge that Roger is an incredibly charming, erudite Truly. guy. That uh, accent and it's a great, goes a long way. Yeah, it's, everybody should check out this podcast. Is at the intersection of like all the things that we are interested in. So, he's uh, yeah. yeah, he's from Liverpool, so he kind of has that love hate relationship with Britain. He's an American yeah. citizen now. Yeah. He lives in New York, but yeah, and like a he's like into being an American citizen. Loves love being an American. Yeah, loves America more than almost anyone I've ever met. Definitely making America cool. better. Yeah. yeah, he's making America great again. <laughs> yeah, 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 uh, okay, <laughs> so let's go to Ukraine, Ben, because. Big news over the weekend. On Saturday, an explosion on the Kerch Strait Bridge partially destroyed the only link between the Crimean Peninsula back to Russia. Uh, the, the road and rail lines on that bridge are critical in terms of how Russia resupplies its troops that are fighting in southern Ukraine. We assume the Ukrainian military or their security services were behind this. We don't know exactly how they did it. There was lots of speculation. Uh, Travis Helwig former comedy writer here at Crooked Media. Not the guy I would turn to. Sending me all kinds of clips, like late Friday night of like drone boats and this, that is great. I loved it. Um, The leading theory seems to be a truck bomb of some kind, but you know, this is, this bridge is about more than just supplies for Putin. When Russia finished constructing it back in 2018, you remember Putin celebrated the opening by personally driving a dump truck across the thing. Yeah. (laughs) Those like triumphant pictures of him in a dump truck. A lot of symbolism here and a lot of symbolism in terms of Russia's claim to Crimea. Uh, hours after the attack, the Russians named a new commander of the war effort, this horrible general who oversaw the brutal air campaign in Syria that killed thousands of people, really, in, in Aleppo. Uh, and then right on cue, uh, the Russian military started firing missiles at Kiev and other cities across Ukraine. They hit infrastructure that's purely civilian, like power stations, and they also hit like parks, civilian areas. I saw they blew up a bike path. I mean, this is very indiscriminate. So, Ben, um, this is what I mean when I say, like, I feel like the world is precarious. Every week we talk about some new escalatory step. I have no problem, obviously, with, you know, the Ukrainian military targeting a, a resupply line. But the retaliation from the Russians is an escalation. You're seeing Western countries promise 
more weapons, you know, and, and on and on it goes. And I don't know, it's just kind of, it's got me as feeling nervous like I did in kind of late February, early March. Yeah, I mean, so first of all, the bridge is like hugely symbolic of the entire Putin regime. Um, you know, this 12-mile bridge connecting Crimea to, to Russia, um, kind of the symbol of the annexation of Crimea, but also the scale of Putin's ambition. You mm-hmm. know, he was able to build this bridge that past people couldn't. It's also kind of the scale of his corruption. Like, famously, one of his cronies got like several billion dollars to build this bridge. I think it cost four billion. Yeah, it went way over the surprise, the, surprise. The bid, right? And and people have long believed that a lot of that money found its way back into Putin's pocket. Mm-hmm. Um, and and yeah, it is a critical resupply line. And this gets to the point I was going to make, which is that like, look, the bridge is a military target in the sense that that's one of the principal ways in which the Russians are moving uh, equipment in to resupply their troops in Ukraine. Um, and, and and the Russians in response, like what they did was horrific, grotesque, once again, told on themselves as people who were more than willing to commit war crimes. Putin, by the way, said he himself ordered those strikes. So mm-hmm. he's basically announcing I'm yeah. the war criminal. Smart. Um, but they accomplished nothing, nothing militarily, zero. Like no, civilian targets. Nothing yeah. in the war was different in terms of the, the the battlefield the day after those strikes. So the contrast is like the Ukrainians are continuing to do things that have like a very specific military purpose. Even the attack on the bridge did. But especially what they're doing in their offensives in the south and the north and eastern Ukraine, are they're, they're winning the war. Yeah. And then in response... Putin can't do anything but kind of lash out and lob missiles at you know, like a glass bridge in a park in Kiev. And the know? assessment seems to be that he did this to appease like the really right wing hawks. Like I saw Ramzan Kadyrov, the Chechen leader who's a Putin stooge, was cheering it. The head of RT, yeah. uh, what's her name, was all for this. Like the really rabid right wingers loved this move, even though it was useless, as you just Yeah, what a bunch of dumbass fascists. Like it <laughs> doesn't like not you won nothing today. Like you pissed off everybody around the world. You you in, you you only further ensured that the Ukrainians want nothing to do with you. And the Germans are now gonna send like advanced air defenses. Yeah. Yeah. who had been sitting on the fence, right? Like they're yeah. helping the Ukrainians now. Yeah, Zelensky's out there today asking for big air defense systems and quite likely to get them. The U.S. just announced more HIMARS to the Ukrainians. So like part of the reason we feel so precarious in a strange way is precisely because the Ukrainians are winning, yeah. you know? And Putin, yep. what this strike does signal is that in response to the Ukrainians winning, his answer is to take it out on the Ukrainian people. And then that raises the specter of, nuclear weapons, chemical weapons, other things that he could do that that have a purely potentially civilian uh, cost. And and that's what's so scary is it, it, him, him losing is we've we said this way back in February, like the, the scariest thing was him winning. But like a close second is the scariest thing is Putin losing because totally. then you don't know what he's going to do. Exactly. And a couple other sort of notable stories and updates that we saw. There have been some interesting reports about how as critical as Western weapons have been to the war effort, you just mentioned the HIMARS systems, Ukrainians have actually gotten more sheer volume of stuff by overrunning and capturing these Russian supply depots. And like, you know, again, the the long range rockets have allowed the Ukrainians to cut off Russian supply lines. But when you're in this like horrible war of attrition and you just come upon, you know, millions of artillery shells that you yeah. stole from your yeah. opponent, like yeah. it's a big deal. Yeah. Um, there was a report in the New York Times that the U.S. believes 
Ukrainian government was behind a car bomb attack near Moscow in August that killed Daria Dugina, the daughter of a bloodthirsty right-wing Russian nationalist named Alexander Dugin. The U.S. apparently admonished the Ukrainians for that attack. I suspect the Ukrainians will return the favor for leaking it to the New York Times. Uh, there was another weird leak to the Washington Post that says the U.S. has intelligence that a member of Putin's inner circle has voiced disagreement over Russia's handling of the war and that the intel was briefed to Biden and the PDB. Again, weird kind of leak. But, you know, there has been a lot of like very public criticism, seemingly some fighting between the minister of defense and uh, the guy who runs the Wagner group, like two kind of uh, oligarchy types. Um, so I'm not sure what to make of that. Also, Ben, Putin celebrated a big birthday recently, the big 7-0. Uh, observers noted that he got well wishes from Steven Seagal, but not Xi Jinping. Just curious if you uh, if you sent him anything or had any well wishes you maybe put on like TikTok. I, yeah, like a, one of those e-cards, you know, with <laughs> like, like a the, jib jab or something. Yeah, like. yeah, or the b butterflies fly out of the mm. envelope, you know. I mean, it's very nice. I mean, what is it about these autocrats, by the way, that they they send each other birthday congratulations? It's so lame. It's very lame. Like, what are you doing? Oh, hey, congratulations, President of Tajikistan, on your birthday. You know, um, but it like it is kind of therefore because it, this seems important to autocrats. It it does show that she has Putin in something of a. Like on this friend list, he's been downgraded to the second tier of the friend list. Yeah, he's getting uh, left on like a read receipt on text and stuff. Yeah, you know, yeah. He's not hearing <laughs> yeah, back. Yeah, yeah. Or he's got the, when Putin texts G, he gets that like notifications have been silenced uh, response. <laughs> um, on, the, on the car bomb, um, I, I think it's worth us like, you know, saying, uh, or me, because uh, I, I think I was one, uh, you know, I went along with the speculation that maybe the FSB could have done this because it happened so fast. Right, and, I forgot about that And the Ukrainian woman they framed seemed very unlikely. And by the way, that Ukrainian woman they framed may still be unlikely. Um, so, eat, you know, eat my words on that. Uh, I, I think this was kind of a dumb thing for the Ukrainians to do. Like, there's enough to focus on in Ukraine mm -hmm. and... It is kind of like once you get into these kinds of targeted killings inside of Russia, um, it, what you're accomplishing relative to like how uncomfortable that's going to make some of your allies. In this case, it was the U.S. that leaked it. So someone mm -hmm. clearly saw this and didn't like it. Anyway, but put that aside, yeah, no, it, yeah. it feels pretty rogue because there have not been many of these. Right? It's also a non-military target. Yeah. I mean, even if you hit Alexander Dugin, I mean, he's a propagandist, really. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, this is a, it, it was a one-off, so it doesn't feel like this is some strategy of assassination no. by the Ukrainians. So there's something kind of weird about the whole thing. I, you know, I don't quite get it. Um, and I do think it's worth just mentioning, the only thing to watch on this, like, these reports and leaks about, you know, the Wagner Group guy and Prigozhin and, and, and uh, Shoigu, the defense minister, it, it is the case to me that you felt like as this war has kind of gone off the rails, there's this increasing prominence of of, of Ramzan Kadyrov, the Chechen, mm -hmm. who, by the way, if you listen to another Russia, probably responsible for the assassination of Boris Nemtsov. Yeah. So truly yeah, evil guy, a true enemy of the pod, and um, and and and, and Prigozhin, the Wagner Group guy. If they do end up kind of taking over, that's some. These are like the scariest guys right and, and Pergozin, you're um, seeing him at, at literally at prisons yeah like, like recruiting dudes rallying prison, dudes trying you know. to get them to join his his little group yeah so mercenary it, group to me it does speak to potential divisions it also speaks to potential kind of radicalization of who's in charge uh, there you know yeah the last thing i saw do you see that uh, alexander lukashenko the president of belarus said monday he was going to deploy troops with russian forces in response to some sort of perceived threat to Belarus. I don't know that he said deploy them to Ukraine yet, but like, I don't know. There, there's some concern that the Belarusians might get deeper into this. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the question is whether that ends up posing a danger to Lukashenko, too, because I, yeah, I can't imagine point. that a lot of Belarusians want to sign up to go and be in the meat grinder in eastern Ukraine there. The other thing I'm watching, we referenced this last week. We, we actually, we, as we'll get to later, we, we had a pretty good run last week. One of the things we talked about was like, maybe it was week four, the Central Asian countries kind of distancing themselves yeah. a bit from yeah. Russia. There was like a big Times article on this this week, um, and it, it's clear in their statements and in some of their actions that these Central Asian countries that used to kind of look to Russia, or they didn't have a choice, kind of under Russia's thumb, are so uncomfortable with the violation of Ukrainian sovereignty that they really are drifting away from the Russians. And so he's holding on tighter to Belarus, but he's also losing influence in other former Soviet republics. And that, I think, is really notable. Yeah, that is notable. Uh, Let's turn to Iran, because these protests uh, there seem to be growing still. Uh, in large part due to another murder of just an innocent young girl. I mean, there was a 16-year-old girl named Nika Shakamrami. Uh, She was seen protesting. She was burning her headscarf in Tehran and later told friends she was chased by the police, and then she turned up dead. So a 16-year-old kid was probably murdered by the security forces. It's a horrible story. Um, That means the protests have been growing. They've been expanding. There's videos going around social media that appear to show police kind of turning sides, switching sides, and marching with the protesters. The Associated Press reported that workers at Iranian oil and natural gas facilities joined the protests on Monday. Ben, it was, it was fascinating talking to, to Yegi Rezaian on last week's uh, pod about the kind of generational dynamic at play and how these younger Iranians are just like less afraid of the regime. Yeah, great. For, That's such a great interview. She's such so a amazing. Interview. If you haven't, didn't listen to it, go back. Yeah. She's an incredible human being. Um, and I heard a ton of feedback about her personally. There was uh, this song released by an Iranian singer named Shervin Hajipur. It has become the unofficial anthem of the protests. They got 40 million views since this 25-year-old guy posted it on Instagram in late September. The lyrics are basically, the lyrics not basically, the lyrics are strung together tweets sent by demonstrators about why they are protesting. We're going to give a quick listen. برای توی کوچه رخصیدن برای ترسیدن به وقت بوسیدن برای خواهرم خواهرت خواهرامون برای تغییر مغزها که پوسیدن So listen I love to be honest the first time I heard that I was like I'm a cynical person I was pretty unexpectedly moved by that yeah. um it's a beautiful song uh, it translates to for the sake of so he's reading all these tweets for people about why they're out there um, Hajipur was, of course, arrested. Uh, yeah. I think he's out on bail now. So, Ben, just stepping back, like, again, we were at the White House during the Arab Spring, um, and I'm not naive enough to think that there's likely to be a clean ending here where the good guys win, the bad guys lose, the protesters take over. But it does feel like, unlike 2009, unlike previous protests, not since maybe 1979, that there is a real risk to the regime's yeah. survival uh, and if not, like overt questioning of its credibility. And that to me is enormously important. Yeah, there's a lot. I mean, a, a few things on just the song because um, it's indicative of some broader trends. Like the first thing is like that song and the, the reception it got is a sign of the, 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 the scale to which this movement is about more than just politics even. It's about the entire culture and identity of Iran. Right. You know, like yeah. the, the Green Movement in 2009 – and Yegi drew the comparison generationally, but also, you know, that was about, I'm sure it was about more than politics, but it was, you know, it was keyed to a political event, an election. And mm-hmm. this feels like an, a cultural expression that has been building for a long time. 
the lyrics of that song encompass not just the recent events, it encompasses kind of the feeling of psychological oppression of living yeah. in the Islamic Republic. So once a movement becomes about like a cultural phenomenon and not just like a political phenomenon, it's usually much more potent and long lasting. I think this song is also indicative of the fact that Iranian women have been completely in the, the lead on this thing, Iranian girls in the lead on this thing. But, you know, admirably, like men are also stepping up, up to support them. And this guy deserves credit. He said he's not leaving Iran. He got arrested. He's out. He's still like posting stuff on Instagram in support of the protests. Um, so it's a sign of the kind of mobilization in the whole society. You mentioned like the oil workers strike. That was actually pretty key in 1979. It was one of the things that helped kind of crack the edifice around the Shahs when the, the workers started going on strike, particularly in the oil industry. So there's a lot to, to watch here and a lot of danger and to the fear factor that Yegi spoke about, you know, like I saw there are these pictures of Iranian girls who are like in their, you know, teens, like given the finger to a picture of, of the Supreme leader, like this, yeah. I mean, that's all getting this killed. Is, yeah. yeah. Like that, that I didn't see that, you know, that that's, we're in a new territory here. And I think it is really dangerous for the Islamic Republic. I think we, when we caveat this by saying, this could get worse where it gets better, or this might not have a clean ending. As you said, like we're conditioned. It's not because we're not rooting for that. No. Um, it's just conditioned by the Arab Spring. But this does feel like there's this snowball that just keeps getting bigger. And they nothing the regime does is is fixing that. You know. Yeah, and it was good to see the Obamas weighed in in support of the protesters today. I uh, you know I saw Trump actually has been talking about the protests as well and in support of the protesters at his yeah. rally. So it is a bipartisan issue, I think, albeit for far more cynical reasons uh, from Trump. But it was great to see the Obamas like kind of weigh in on this. Yeah, no, and it, I think it was good. It was important for, for them. And I think it's important for Democrats and progressives to support the Iranian people like one million percent on this. Um, and, and look, you know, it, w- part of what's weird about it in our politics is that there's this kind of right wing machine that is pro-regime change in Iran that I disagree with about most things, um, including the idea that the U.S. should impose regime change on Iran. Exactly. Um, But that doesn't mean um, that we should let them own support for the Iranian people. Because I actually, I don't think that they really do support the Iranian people. Some of them, sure. But I think some of them just like, this is geopolitics. This is like, we want to, we want the U.S. to knock over this regime and kind of install, like, you know, be happy with anybody. They'd be happy with like an MBS type or something running around. A strong man that will cut an Abraham Accords type deal with the Israelis and stop threatening their security. Exactly. Exactly. Whereas what what we want is like a bottom up democratization of Iran. And therefore, I I hope more progressive voices continue to speak out. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. 
Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, we've got this election coming down the pike. There's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crookedworld. Speaking of uh, long overdue changes in supported democracy and not corrupt autocrats, let's talk about Saudi Arabia. Uh, you guys have all heard Ben and I talk about how thrilled we were when President Biden went to Saudi Arabia, fist bumped the Saudi crown prince, uh, Mohammed bin Salman. That trip was seen in large part as an effort to calm tensions in the relationship between U.S. and Saudi and, and get them to pump more oil in the wake of sanctions cutting off Russian energy exports. That goal failed miserably uh, in last week, OPEC Plus uh, officially gave the U.S. the middle finger and went all in on helping Russia in the war by agreeing to production cuts. So they're going to reduce their production of oil, which will prop up uh, energy prices, keep money flowing to Putin, and hike gas prices as the world probably goes into a global recession. So not ideal. A lot of people are pissed. Ukrainians, the French, the White House, uh, several Democrats in Congress, including Bob Menendez, who's usually unhelpful. He's the, the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, but he called for a freeze on all cooperation with Saudi Arabia, including arms sales and security cooperation. There's some big, some big carve-outs, some caveats in there of like without endangering U.S. security, but basically saying OPEC better reverse course or we'll pull back uh, all this cooperation. The U.S., uh, I saw right before we came in, reportedly canceled a meeting with the, the GCC, the Gulf Cooperation Council Working Group on Iran, so, Ben, I, you know, I do think it would be worth just trying to quickly imagine for listeners, like, what a right-sized U.S.-Saudi relationship could look like. I will start by just noting that both of us are well aware of the Obama administration. We worked closely with the Saudis. We sold them a shitload of weapons. I don't think either of us are thrilled with that history. I, yeah, I didn't like it at the time. Yeah, there but are also, very few things where I say I didn't like that at the time. Yeah, <laughs> but also, look, I mean, just it's, it's worth also just noting, like, Mohammed bin Salman has upended and changed well, the leadership yeah. and the dynamic, yeah. right? So there's yeah. a distinction. But again, like still kind of happy to be critical of that oh, record. Yeah, yeah. But like, I do think there's some risks here for the US in severing the relationship in like a fit of peak that we should just talk about, which are, you know, I'm still aware of some really important 
counterterrorism partnerships that we had against al-Qaeda in recent years with the Saudis. They're the biggest player in the Gulf and our ability to you know, have influence in the region can go through them sometimes. The U.S. is about 5,000 troops in Saudi and the UAE. Um, curious, Ben, what you think. So those are the things kind of like at stake, right? Uh, any of these proposals that you've seen floated in Congress, like Tom Malinowski had one, just talked about the Bob Menendez one, anything floated makes sense to you? Any anxiety about kind of making this decision, you know, in the context of them not pumping oil versus, I don't know, human rights, butchering a journalist, et cetera? I'm going to start where you ended, which is it's all well and good that all these people have decided that they're now outraged about the U.S.-Saudi relationship. Um, but it does kind of tell on ourselves yeah. that, oh, when they were just chopping up journalists and throwing women activists in prison, um, that was one thing. But whoa, when OPEC came out right. and like hurt our bottom line, it, game on, right? I mean, like I wish that the thing that triggered people was the chopping up of a journalist for the Washington Post. Put that aside because everybody knows how we feel about that. Um, how would you right-size it? There were a lot of proposals that, uh, frankly, a lot of people around Biden were for <laughs> in, in the Trump years, um, suspending all arms sales to Saudi Arabia. Um, and, and, you know, you can say you're suspending because you, you can say you'll resume them if sure. things change. Meet these criteria, yeah. Um, but, like, you know, we're, they need those arms. They want those arms. W that only hurts us in that the defense contractors don't get the money for those arms. Right. Mm -hmm. and so that's something that matters to, to people in the U.S., but like I, I think that's a risk worth taking because I don't think we should be arming people like this. Stopping any support for their war in Yemen, which has been stop and start around ceasefires but is still ongoing, uh, would be a, a, certainly a, a part of the consequences you could impose. Um, and, and just you know, this kind of lack of deference to their uh, their concerns uh, on this range of issues. Now, the risks, I don't, terrorism, like they, they have their own interest in fighting terrorism. Like, so I always kind of, when people would say, well, what about the yeah, cooperation on, on the ISIS or Al-Qaeda? Like, yeah, that, like they're not going to switch sides because like those guys would kill MBS <laughs> if they could, you know, like the uh, ISIS guys and, and what's left of Al-Qaeda, although there's not really much left. Um the risk, what the other risk used to hear is that they're going to kind of go all in with the Russians. Well, first of all, they just bailed out the Russians uh, with a significant amount of revenue on these oil prices. And fucking Mohammed bin Zayed. I was the, just going to say that. The president yeah, of the UAE. Yeah. The, 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 in the, Moscow. The most powerful man in the Emirates is in Moscow today where he said Russia has the right to defend its national security. Right. By I, invading I other countries. Like this is the man. And, and, and I'm. DC listeners, like uh, I'm looking at you, people who've been at Gulf-funded think yeah, tanks. Yeah, <laughs> people who've been at Cafe Milano with with the Emiratis, or you know, Wolfgang Puck, uh, like cooked at the Emirati ambassador's residence for some party you went to. Like that guy is in fucking Moscow today, the day after like a bunch of missiles were lobbed at civilians. Okay. Now, now, I think the most benign description of this meeting is maybe he's trying to play a diplomatic role and the Saudis sure. played a role in that prisoner exchange. If I'm wrong and it is announced that Mohammed bin Zayed has brokered an end to the war in Ukraine, like I will eat all the crow in the world. All I see is a supposedly highly respected figure in Washington who's celebrated for his strategic acumen, Mohammed bin Zayed, sitting next to Vladimir Putin. Okay, and 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 on the on the Russian relationship. Oh, what they really—they're going to buy all their arms from the Russians? 
I mean, those are some good arms the Russians got. They, they can try, right, yeah. but there's not a lot left. And switching <laughs> yeah. systems at this point is going to take a decade. Well, that's what I always heard from our military is it would take them a decade to get on Russian systems to American systems. And the Russian systems, like, don't seem to be working too well. You yeah. Know? We have leverage. Like, we, <laughs> we always act like the Saudis have all this leverage on us. And we're just these, like, this, we're this small country that has to do whatever they say. No, they're rich. That's their leverage. They have a lot of money. Listen to the, the podcast uh, that you did with Roger to, to get a sense of that. Um, world corrupt. I mean, like, like the, the, this is these are the most corrupt guys in the world. One way to make this a lot easier, by the way, would be to diversify our sources of well, oil, yes, right? yes. And so yes. we talked last week about a prisoner exchange between the U.S. and Venezuela, and wondered if that could be part of a, a broader diplomatic thaw. Uh, shortly after that speculation, the Wall Street Journal reported that the U.S. is preparing to reduce sanctions on Venezuela allow Chevron to resume pumping oil and gas and get them back online. That will take a while. Um, but if that happens, if we had a better relationship with Iran and Iranian oil was on the oil market, that could fill a, a chunk of the energy gap. And of course, like the long term, the goal is to get the fuck off fossil fuels, right? But that's going to take but a yeah. while. Yeah. Uh, that will probably not happen before the Russia-Ukraine war no. is over. But, you know, it did seem like the administration maybe leaked the Venezuela piece of this in response to OPEC plus. And if so, good for you. Yeah. Smart and it's move. Probably like a signal to markets to do that leak. Yes. leak. But like the, yeah, look, you, it bears saying that the long-term goal here should be to get off of fossil fuels. If, you know, I think we should be doing that for the planet, but like it also stands to reason that all these guys, whether you're talking about Putin or MBS or Maduro for that reason, uh, for that matter, or, or the, the reason they're able to be autocrats is because they have oil and, you know, everybody needs oil. But, but I do think in the short run, look, the idea of having these kind of blanket sanctions and trying to choke and starve off the Venezuelan oil industry hasn't done anything to dislodge Maduro. It's it, it kind of funny that we like we had this other dictator in Saudi Arabia that we go to yeah, one, to yeah. do our bidding on oil. And then with this other dictator that we sanction. And But I think that it would be logical for our own interest, but also ultimately to try to have more of an entry point to make progress in Venezuela to do that step and, and to facilitate the return of Venezuelan oil to the market beyond where it's been. Uh, let's turn to the UK, Ben, because the new uh, British Prime Minister, Liz Truss, is making history. Uh, we talked a few weeks back about how her tax plan nearly tanked the global economy, the Tory tax plan. They walked part of that back. But then uh, last week, a British outlet called The Observer uh, commissioned a poll that found Liz Truss has a negative 47-point approval rating, the worst ever recorded for a prime minister by their polling firm. Do we think David Lammy is about to be foreign minister? Because this is feeling good. I mean, let's just get the election called here. I mean, um, it, this is some... Uh, I think what's clear from these numbers is, like, she's not going to recover. Like, no, th there's no chance that she can, you know, become elected prime minister, I think. And so... It just begs the question of, of will there be an early election just because of the complete chaos in British politics? If not, when it, will the Tories dump her overboard? Like a vote um, of confidence, I guess. Yeah, yeah. But like this is this is a really dysfunctional situation right now where you have this prime minister has no legitimacy. She didn't win an election. Nobody seems to want her to be prime minister except for a hard hardline number of Tories. She you know, was playing footsie with tanking the whole global economy. And now 
Yeah, we're just in this waiting game till Keira Starmer can get in. Even worse, Ben, she attacked us personally in a speech. She said, quote, Labor, the Lib Dems, and the SNP, dot, 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 prefer protesting to doing. They prefer talking on Twitter to taking tough decisions. They taxi from North London townhouses to the BBC studio to dismiss anyone challenging the status quo. From broadcast to podcast, they peddle the same old answers. End of quote. So I am announcing the formation of a 2004 Iraq War-style coalition of the willing podcasters to fight back against these smears. We're going to get Rogan, Ben Shapiro, <laughs> Caller Daddy, all the true crime, and we're going to fight back. Are you with me? Yeah. I mean, this is, you know, first they came for the markets and I said nothing, but then they came for the <laughs> podcasters and I took that personally. Yeah. I mean, I, and so I took that a like little MJ. personally. Yeah. Like, uh, I, I mean, you know, maybe don't worry about the podcasters, Liz Trust. You're prime minister of like a big, well, it used to be really important country. Well, no, sorry. It's still important country. Sorry, guys. I mean, like, get focused on other things here. The North London reference was a little weird, too. That's kind of where the a lot of the heart of the Jewish community is. Oh, interesting. <laughs> and, and, but, like, that. the it was just, it made me just because Keir Starmer said to do all this work to purge, you know, anti Semitism from the ranks of the Labor Party. But anyway, uh, yeah, podcast hit, it, it hit a little close to home. Back off, trust. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that's been bugging me, Ben, is Elon Musk will not stop tweeting about foreign policy. Uh, he tweeted a Twitter poll asking people to vote on a Russia-Ukraine quote-unquote peace plan, arguing that they should redo the elections in annexed regions under UN supervision, make Crimea formally a part of Russia, and require Ukraine to remain neutral. I assume that means no EU membership, no NATO. Not the best deal for Ukraine uh, or much concern <laughs> yeah. shown for the Ukrainian people, especially reports of uh, torture of civilians in Russian-occupied areas. Elon also told the Financial Times that Taiwan should become part of uh, a special administrative zone controlled by China. What a surprise uh, that the Chinese government loved that idea. I think he sells a lot of Teslas there. Yeah. Um, I generally dislike and avoid the kind of Elon Musk news cycle because he's just like a thirsty troll. But it annoyed me because uh, there does seem to be some question about whether Elon is reducing Ukraine's access to his Starlink's internet satellites, which have been critical for the Ukrainian military. Then more generally, like there is obviously a place, I think, for what's usually called track two diplomacy, like conversations by people outside of government to try to find space for some sort of peace deal. But this just reeks of a guy looking out for his own business interests, having a massive ego and being willing to just spout off on anything. And like a Twitter poll about peace in Ukraine is just like such a self-evidently stupid way to have this conversation that I worry that his efforts are making real diplomacy or real diplomatic efforts look like a farce. And we don't want that. Yeah. I mean, you know, in some ways, Elon Musk is the perfect avatar for Twitter itself, um, which explains, I guess, his interest in it. Because like you and I have joked over the years that like, you know, a pandemic happens and suddenly everybody on Twitter is an infectious sure, disease sure, yeah. expert, you know, or, um, well, the hurricane's coming and suddenly everybody's like a weather expert. Like Elon Musk, because he like is following the war on Twitter is now like thinks he's somehow qualified to like broker peace. He got a little bit of pushback and he's tweeting like maps of what he thought was like a polling result from 2012. It's like, hey man, anything happened between then and now well, that might change people's opinions? Yeah, because I, mean, I was going to say like, usually guys who do track two or women who do track two um, are experts in like the field they're doing track two. Right. And, and the thing about that map, so he tweeted this map from 2012 that showed the kind of more pro-Russian political parties had done well in eastern Ukraine. Totally different context, pre-2014, 
by the way, ignores that the same regions voted for independence overwhelmingly from Russia, but also like who gave them that map? You know, yeah. like, I, I doubt that, that Elon Musk has like a, a, a set of graphics on his computer of the maps of, 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 of Ukrainian election results. It is the, very weird. You know, someone is feeding him this stuff. And look, he's the richest guy in the world uh, or one of them. Like he has a platform. It's reaching a lot of people. It's a pain in the ass to think about, but it makes your head hurt. But yeah, meanwhile, like the Taiwan plan, which basically Taiwan won't exist anymore. Yeah, um, I mean, let's just move on, uh, Elon. Maybe to protecting go his, back own, to space, uh, his own know? semiconductor yeah. access. Uh, a couple of things we don't have time to discuss this week, but just want to note. Trump, in his infinite helpfulness, threw his weight behind a far-right party in Spain called the Vox Party. Yeah. We've, we've talked about them before. They're terrible. We'll talk about them in the future. The U.S. sent a delegation to Afghanistan for meetings with the Taliban that included David Cohen, uh, who's been on this show. We know him well. He's a, the deputy CIA director. Uh, I'm sure that was a blast. Uh, hopefully, they'll get to a place where there's some sort of deal on humanitarian relief for the Afghan people. Ben, everyone seems to think Kim Jong-un is about to test a nuclear weapon. Uh, there's lots of reporting about his uh, new outfits. He's wearing a weird white shirt. Don't know what to make of that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and then, kind of need pray, love hat. You know. Oh, yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> and then a video of Brazilian, speaking of eat, pray, love, a video of Brazilian President uh, Jair Bolsonaro saying he would eat human flesh has gone viral in their presidential campaign. Yeah, good to see that campaign uh, closing on that note. Uh, <laughs> we'll definitely be coming back to the Brazilian election. Uh, it was good to see friend of the pod, Tabata Amaral, uh, out there. Lulu was like, promoting her as a surrogate. But then uh, my favorite David Cohen story, I, like, I hope I didn't tell it before, that involves you, is like when he was the sanctions guy at Treasury. Mm-hmm. Um, we were putting like the 900th round of sanctions on Iran, and, and we put David Cohen on uh, television, right? He did some cable hits or something. And Dag Vega, um, maybe who, first who ran uh, booking and sort of he kind of ran the TV. The White House, booked, yeah. He booked the. He was concerned. He came up to you and I after, and he's like, uh, "We're like, hey, David did great." And he's like, I, "I don't think so." He looked really angry the entire hit, <laughs> and you just look at him without. He's like. He's fucking angry at Iran, Dag. He's angry at Iran. Dag didn't know what to do. He didn't know if you were joking or not. Uh, like, yeah, we were. Uh, look, it, was, it was a pressure cooker. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> a little good news, Ben. Uh, remember that NASA mission we talked about a couple of weeks back? Yeah, yeah, yeah. a spa- yeah. Uh, yeah, spaceship into an asteroid. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Uh, they were testing whether we could deflect planet-killing asteroids in the future. Sounds like it went well. It did. Points for NASA. Yeah. So we just need to not kill ourselves first. And again, like I said, like they they shot this little thing at this asteroid thing, and it worked. It, every movie in which we needed to send a nuclear, like a massive nuclear weapon, hit the asteroid is now. Yeah. We didn't need to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So then, nope. Affleck, Bruce Willis, you could have survived. Sorry, guys, another argument against nukes. Uh, two quick things before we close, and we get to your uh, your interview with former Prime Minister Rudd. Uh, you guys know we love a good scandal here. So just to, f- to follow up on the story that had the uh, the chess world buzzing, uh, an investigation found that a teenage chess champion named Hans Niemann likely cheated more than 100 times. Uh, he was recently accused of using signals delivered via electronic anal bead to cheat in a match in St. Louis. There's a very funny video of him that went viral because uh, he was getting a little more thorough pat down mm. than the others at, yeah. the, uh, at the event. So care to comment? Uh, well, I'm just glad we could get to the bottom of something. There's, there's a lot of loose ends on this show. Um, uh, you know, you know, we, I mean, 
This <laughs> I like what you did there. Yeah, yeah. You, you had it at the top. You had it at the top. Also, the world's oldest and largest competitive Irish dancing organization is looking at the charges that teachers at prominent dance schools have been rigging the competitions. Some parents in some of these articles compared it to the mafia because once you get a favor from some like crooked dance judge, you're indebted to them for life. Uh, no reports of anal beats being involved, but it does seem like the moral of the story here is that people will cheat at literally any competition you throw. No, so. this the the anal beads thing has prompted my antenna around cheating scandals to go up. So in addition to this one, uh, we've like you know had the poker scandal, yeah. right? Uh, what was that? I couldn't understand it. I'm not smart enough. It was basically like this live stream poker showdown between this like very established poker player and this kind of up and coming woman. She like kind of called him for his the entire pot at a circumstance when you wouldn't normally do that, like the odds were uh, didn't suggest you should do that. And she won. And then he accused her of cheating. And then she gave all the money back to him. But then she said she didn't cheat. And now there's like a huge, like poker Twitter's gone nuts on this. Hmm. And then there was the one of the fish, these guys who were in these like fishing competitions who were like- That was the best. Putting extra weight into their catches that got caught. That was incredible. Um, so the, like people are cheating at that. The, there, the fishing know? one, just to like go back to that. So these there's these fishing competitions, you can win a ton of money, like hundreds of thousands of dollars. Who knew? I'm in the wrong field. Yeah. So these dudes are weighing their fish and you're supposedly the fish are supposed to be alive when you weigh them because they, they catch and release. Yeah. Their fish were dead. People were like, it smelled kind of fishy. Yeah. So they started cutting <laughs> yeah. them open. Yeah. These guys had shoved like, other fish fillets and lead weights into the bodies of these fish. And there was almost like mob justice delivered <laughs> yeah. on these guys in real time. It, yeah. it got real ugly. They were, I mean, they were caught hook, line, and sinker. I mean, there was like no question about it. Brutal. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. Enough from us. When we come back, you'll hear from someone very smart and very erudite, Kevin Rudd, the former prime minister of Australia about all things China. So stick around. Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Thank you. 
We are very pleased to welcome back to Pod Save the World, Kevin Rudd, the former prime minister and foreign minister, and then prime minister again of Australia, uh, the president of the Asia Society, and also the author of a book, a relatively new book, The Avoidable War, Reflections on U.S.-China Relations and the End of Strategic Engagement. It's a long title, but everybody should buy it. (laughs) This is the best primer you're going to get on the rising tensions between the U.S. and China, the risk uh, of conflict uh, over Taiwan or something else. But welcome back to Pod Save the World. Thanks very much, Ben. Good to be back in uh, L.A. Good to be back on Pod Save the World. Have you saved it yet? We're working on it. Uh, The thing about having this podcast is if we save the world, we put ourselves out of business. So um, actually, the the state of the world is actually, you know, relevant to our model. A bit like the avoidable war. The book <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So we should collaborate on this, God <laughs> yeah. Save the World and the Avoidable War. I think it's a similar mission statement. It is. There's a lot of overlap. Um, well, I want to start, you know, you are really one of the foremost experts we have on China in the world. Um, we, it's the subject of your book. We are also approaching a very important event in China. The Party Congress uh, is upcoming. Just for our listeners, describe like wh- why this is important and what, what do you think the kind of headline to watch for out of this event will be? Obviously, Xi Jinping is seeking a third term, not really contested in that regard, <laughs> but, but, but how do you set up the party conference and its importance? Yeah, well, in the history of the Communist Party, they have these every five years. So the party's just literally had its 100th birthday, and this is Congress number 20. So you take your shoes and socks off and then you work out with, if you count your fingers as well, um, that's the entire history of the party since 1921. What do they do? Every five years they elect uh, the supreme uh, decision-making bodies of the party, what's called the Central Committee, 220 members thereabouts, 25 members of the Politburo and seven members of the Standing Committee of the Politburo. And really, the Standing Committee, the Politburo, acts as the cabinet of the of the country, and it meets uh, weekly with a fixed agenda, fixed secretariat. So that's kind of where it all happens, in and around Xi Jinping's office itself. So what we're all looking for in terms of the Twentieth Party Congress is the personnel changes. Who are the folks who are retiring? Probably eleven out of the twenty-five are retiring for age reasons, and then it will be a question of. Um, who gets promoted, because the folks uh, who get promoted uh, also then become candidates for taking on significant positions in the administration of the country, from premier, vice premiers for the economy, um, as well as uh, those responsible for foreign policy and security policy and those sort of things. The other thing we're looking for for the Congress is it's the five yearly work report by the general secretary of the party, which lays out the ideological line for the party in the country for the long term. And the reason we emphasize that is under Xi Jinping, ideologies come roaring back. It's not just the Deng Xiaoping period where it was a bit of camouflage over the top of a party which had basically become economically pragmatic and foreign policy pragmatic. That's no longer the case. Uh, Xi Jinping's brought ideology back. It's more Marxist-Leninist. It's more nationalist. And as a result, therefore, when we look at this document, we'll be looking at, is he going further left on the economy? Is he going further right on nationalism? And that'll be answered for us by the sorts of phrases and language which are used, which are different from those in the past. So I think we all anticipate Xi Jinping kind of breaking the recent taboo uh, of, uh, of Chinese leaders who've only served two terms 
Um, and, you know, uh, I haven't seen the polling, but uh, I imagine uh, we, we expect a decisive validation of Xi Jinping. Um, the, one thing that you've written a lot about uh, that people miss sometimes, because I think the narrative around China and the U.S. is this kind of, you know, rapid growth, uh, poised to, to, to take over as the world's largest economy, an ascendant political model that is challenging democracy. But there's some real vulnerabilities uh, in China, a slowing economy, uh, the zero COVID policy that it seems to have engendered some building unease in China, you know, bubble in the real estate market. What, what are the risks coming out of this party Congress for Xi Jinping? And how should we think about the vulnerabilities that China's facing going forward? Well, Ben, you're right. When I travel around America, because I live in New York, I run an American think tank. And I speak to Americans, and sometimes there's an assumption that China is 10 foot tall um, and that America is still 6 foot 2. Yeah. I suppose my my news for the United States through Pod Save the World today is think of China as 5 foot 9 and a half. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like they've grown a lot um, and they may grow further. In fact, they probably will. Uh, but let's understand that there are still constraints on China's growth. And there are two or three big ones. The overhang of demography. As of next year, India will be a bigger country in population terms than China. But more importantly, there's a shrinking workforce, and that means less competitive labor rates. It also means more money being spent on old people through the aging of the population and the budget. So all those factors are a headwind against growth. Um, The other big challenge, I think, facing the country at large is rising structural unemployment. Uh, We've got a project of the Age Society at the moment on what we call the 19%. These are the, that's the youth unemployment rate. And it's been stuck for quite a while. And if so, you're a young person who's college educated and you can't find yourself a job, Life's not looking as bright as it used to when there was this automatic absorption of bright young things into the new technology industries of China's future. So there are social problems hanging around that as well. And for the world at large, as China has become more pushy in its foreign and security policy, um, well, uh, it's generated a reaction around the world as well. Not everyone's in love with the People's Republic of China. Uh, If you're in Europe, people are now scratching their heads about why they would never condemn Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, Many people are disturbed fundamentally about human rights abuses in Xinjiang, as recently concluded in the Human Rights Council report on the same. And if you go even to the developing world um, and you see the overhang of Chinese debt through the Belt and Road Initiative, there are now possibly 8 to 12 countries in the world looking towards uh, one level of sovereign debt crisis or the other where China is the principal owner of the debt. So the reactions, therefore, in those parts of the world where China has been slow to reschedule debt and in some places where assets have been confiscated to offset debt, like in Sri Lanka, it creates reactions as well. So it's not all going China's way. It's still a country of formidable strengths and which, uh, therefore, represents a major competitor, structural competitor, the future of United States power. But as I said, five foot nine and a half is different to 10 foot tall. And we should see it in those terms. So uh, you have a good perspective uh, for the next couple of questions I can ask, one about the US and then the next one about Taiwan. 
in that you were a politician, so you had to kind of be attuned to public moods. You were a diplomat, so you had to try to solve problems sometimes that politicians made. Uh, and In other you, words, not attuned to yeah, public mood. <laughs> exactly, right, <laughs> exactly. And then, you know, you've been an academic of sorts and kind of assessing all this. Uh, it seems like you, you talk about the avoidable war. Um, China and the U.S. both have problems. You just talked about the Chinese problems a bit. Uh, the U.S., I think we all know what our political dysfunctions have been. It feels like both countries uh, amidst those problems have, you know, anti-American or anti-Chinese sentiment is building inside their body politic, right? So China's become increasing nationalistic and somewhat anti, you know, increasingly anti-American in some of its rhetoric and media. But the same is true in America. You see, you know, uh, increasing anti-Chinese sentiment in the U.S. Congress and American politics. The premise of your book is essentially you have to manage this competition between the U.S. and China to avoid a war. How do you do that when all these forces that are being regularly unleashed in the politics of both countries is driving in the other direction? By the way, in your intro to the question, I loved uh, your reference to me being an academic of sorts. <laughs> yeah, I, th yeah. I think that's one of the most generous things that's it been said, yeah, said about my claim to the academy. Yes. But I should tell you, literally three weeks ago, I finally graduated from Oxford. Yeah, you, gown uh, and everything, right? I did a gown, yeah. got, a, got a, a genuine defil after four years of hard labor. <laughs> so well, are you a doctor? Can we call you Dr. Rudd? You can, right. but I'm, basically I specialize in <laughs> yeah. podiatry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also in Chinese Marxist-Leninist <laughs> ideology. So we fix your feet. And we do your ideology yeah. at the same <laughs> yeah. time. The uh, one of the craziest things I've done in my life, by the way. Yeah, I know. Congratulations. So it's, uh, but on your core proposition, which is the world which politicians live and work and have their being in, uh, and that which uh, diplomatists occupy, um, and where do the intersecting sets lie, and how do you craft? a strategy for dealing with China in the future, which is policy literate and politically literate. That's the essential nature yeah. of the challenge. The policy literate argument is what I describe as managed strategic competition, essentially constructing a framework which has strategic guardrails in it around the five big strategic red lines in the US-China relationship, you know, Taiwan, South China Sea, East China Sea, Korean Peninsula, plus cyber and space any one of which any day of the week could erupt into something really bad. Yeah. Okay. So most rational folks sit down, even if we're sitting in Beijing at the moment, we'd probably agree on this part of the conversation. Yeah. Um, then uh, enters the real world of politics where uh, China, uh, in this country, the United States, and amongst most uh, democratic countries in the world, not Western countries only, but democratic yeah. countries, uh, is uh, seen its uh, approval uh, levels collapse um, more in the West than in Asia, yeah. but also in other parts of the democratic world in Asia uh, and Africa as well. So the intersecting set, I think, is this. If you ask Americans and Chinese at the corporate level and at the uh, public level, do they really think going to war is a smart thing? Yeah. Um, and then you spend the next 30 seconds describing the fact that there is no such thing as a limited war between China and the United States, that if it broke out over the Taiwan Straits, there is one path, it's called escalation, because automatically you're going to be involving Guam, 
yeah. United States territory. Yeah. You're going to be involving Okinawa, sovereign territory of Japan. You're going to be involving the coast of Fujian, where China's uh, intermediate rocket forces lie, which directly threaten Taiwan and U.S. forces in the region. You are in a general yeah. war yeah. very rapidly. Yeah. So the idea, which I think exists in the back of people's mind, this would be like a 21st century version of the Falklands War with pop, 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 you yeah. know, battleships in a distant sea somewhere is just so fundamentally wrong that yeah. the job of policymakers is to paint for the publics of the world, including in China. This will be bloody, cost tens if not hundreds of thousands of lives, including Taiwanese civilians. And therefore, of itself, if we're mindful of the history, say, of the First World War, is a war, war well worth avoiding. Yeah, That's part of the painting of the picture, which yeah. the... Uh, policy class need to do for the political class. Yeah. So then turning to Taiwan, which is, you know, of your five scenarios, probably the most, unfortunately, likely to be the, the tripwire into a potential conflict. Um, you know, you have a, an essential situation. We've talked about this a bit recently in the podcast. Um, but you have a situation in which the Chinese kind of insistence uh, that that any discussion between the the government of Beijing and the government of Taiwan takes place under the premise that there's one China, and that China is governed by the People's Republic of China. That That is the uh, China governed by the Chinese Communist Party. That's kind of their precondition for discussion. And their offer is one country, two systems. You can be a part of China, but we'll let you keep an aut autonomous political system of sorts. That obviously looks a lot less attractive after Hong Kong, right? A lot of spontaneous applause. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Not in like. Taiwan. <laughs> a slow clap in Taiwan <laughs> on that one. Uh, and then in Taiwan, you have a government that you know increasingly sees itself not as like some government in exile of China, which is how it was for years uh, mm. under Chiang Kai-shek, but as you know the government of Taiwan. They just want to be left alone. How do you? What is there for Taiwan and China to talk about if they just disagree about this fundamental question of whether Taiwan is part of China? How, how do you structure a dialogue of sorts that can, you know, as, as as I've heard you say, talk, talk, talk instead of war, 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 um, jaw, jaw, jaw? Uh, how do you do that in that context where, as we were just saying, the public mood is, is probably not to have those conversations? Well, you're right because uh, China took out a huge long barrel shotgun and blew a hole in its foot yeah. uh, over Hong Kong and therefore by extension over the future of one country, two systems as a basis for managing the future negotiation with uh, Taiwan. If you look back at what happened, and it's very recent, uh, the crackdown in Hong Kong, last yeah. several years really. Um, and leading into the last Taiwanese presidential election, President Tsai Ing-wen was in some difficulty going to that election. Suddenly the Chinese did what they did in Hong Kong, and suddenly the uh, the traditional governing party in Taiwan, which had been working on one country, two systems, yeah. with the PRC, the KMT, the Kuomintang, looked like a bunch of political sellouts. Yeah. Uh, and they got smashed uh, in those elections, as we know. And frankly, if the KMT return to that position, they get smashed again. Yeah. Um, you're now a the one podcaster in the United States who's a Taiwan expert. <laughs> you've, <laughs> you've just been there for, yeah. uh, for an extended period of time. Uh, so your question, therefore, is a valid one, which is apart from the artificiality of constructing a dialogue, uh, what could it be about? Two core points. 
The PRC's benchmark for re-entering dialogue is accepting this mythical hallowed status of something called the 1992 consensus, yeah. Yeah. which is a piece of high theology which even I can't remember because yeah. uh, it's it's complex and like most things associated with the Delphic Oracle, uh, <laughs> cap- capable of accommodating multiple interpretations. Yes. But anyway, let's just put that to one side because it's kind of about there is one China. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And... Um, I don't think it, frankly, it should be an impediment for the DPP or the KMT to get across that hurdle, and they should. Yeah. The second and real part is the substance of it. One country, two systems is dead and buried. It's called Hong Kong. Yeah. Okay. Therefore, if the Chinese are serious about this, about a negotiated as opposed to a military outcome, we're up for one country, three systems. And the third system would have to be radically different from the second one. There was a day uh, when uh, those of us who used to play think tank land around Taiwan, I used to be a policy planner when I had a real job prior to politics, (laughs) and that was in the Australian equivalent of the State Department. And we used to think about what a grand Chinese confederation might look like, and that is Taiwan effectively retaining everything that it is now, including its armed forces, yeah. including its sovereign capabilities to be represented abroad, but still falling part into what might be called a broader national confederation. Yeah. In other words, it was ultimately a uh, political n- nationalist and almost uh, ethno-nationalist concept. Yeah. But beyond that, did not have a whole lot of um, domestic, political and administrative coherence. One country, three systems, if it was to ever get anywhere, would have to be along those lines. When I've discussed Chinese grand Chinese confederations with the PRC in the past, they look at me as if I've just, um, like Martin Luther, nailed a whole bunch of heresies uh, to the door of the church in 1517 (laughs) and then begin to say heresy, 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 and then start constructing funereal pyres. But if you if they're serious about a dialogue, it's got to be about a different model. Yeah, and at least probably just some mechanism to avoid unnecessary escalation, right? I well, in in the vein of dialogue, um, I think there's a lot of anticipation that uh, Joe Biden may actually see Xi Jinping for the first time um, later this year at the G20 summit in Indonesia. Um, pretty remarkable that we're and this is more of a COVID thing than anything else, but they were almost two years into the. Uh, you know, Biden administration, they haven't seen each other. Um, you know, Xi will be enshrined in his third term, um, will be after our midterm elections. Uh, what do you, what, what would you say should be the focus, particularly for the Biden administration going into that meeting? And what what, what does a good, successful meeting look like from your, your vantage point? Well, politics and diplomacy, as you know, is the art of the possible. So going into such a meeting, um, it would be useful for the administration to have a clear idea, I think, of where Xi Jinping's mindset is at the moment. And he is not domestically vulnerable uh, in a political sense, but there are another range of mounting vulnerabilities, which we've discussed earlier in this uh, podcast. A slowing economy uh, induced by a whole range of demographic and ideological and COVID-related reasons, plus Um, uh, Xi Jinping's bestie, Vladimir Putin, having done what he's done in Ukraine, uh, which Xi Jinping effectively backed in back in February, 
And now this guy is uh, in all sorts of trouble. So therefore, suddenly, uh, China's geopolitical situation looks less robust from Beijing's lens because of Russia and economically because of the factors I've discussed before. I think going into Bali, therefore, the United States should see Xi Jinping, despite his triumph at the 20th Party Congress within the Communist Party, as being somewhat externally and economically vulnerable and therefore probably in a mood to find a stabilization mechanism for this relationship. Yeah. So what would that mean, like putting on the table? It would mean putting a framework on the table, which I describe as managed strategic competition. The administration will have its own language around this, but which just sets up guardrails of one form or another or a process to get there around these five strategic red lines. Agree that you're going to have non-lethal competition in other domains and still carve out space for John Kerry to do his work on climate uh, and for the other global common goods to be advanced, including global financial stability where we're not out of the woods yet. For example, debt stabilization. Interestingly, prior to the Pelosi implosion is what I describe it, (laughs) which is um, Nancy doing what she did, um, which I don't think was wise. Uh, and the Chinese reacting in the way in which they did, which I don't think was wise, but that's what happened. Chinese think tanks had begun to work through concepts of a change of conceptual framework for the relationship around uh, a type of managed strategic competition. If you ask now, what's the Chinese classical formulation of the US-China relationship? It is no conflict, no confrontation, mutual respect for each other's political systems and win-win cooperation, Yeah. Uh, to which I said recently to senior visiting Chinese officials. So untrue, 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 untrue. Yeah, <laughs> little idea, little idea. <laughs> so, yeah. so I'm not going to get very far with that, comrades, yeah. I said to them. Yeah. So, But there are formulations which start to edge towards where I think the United States under Secretary Blinken and National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan and the president are moving, which is if you could begin talking about the need for positive cooperation, constructive competition, but the Chinese were not necessarily dismissive of this idea, strategic guardrails within a necessary strategic framework to stabilize the relationship, then I think we start to move in a more, shall we say, stabilizing direction. My last point is this, Ben. The reason language matters in the Chinese system and what is officially authorized by the leader from the top because it's an utterly hierarchical system, if the leader pronounces a new orthodoxy in language for the US-China relationship, then the rest of the ecosystem starts to work in a different direction. The military, the diplomatic establishment, as well as the economic system. Yeah. Whereas at present, it's not. Yeah. And the, those guardrails you know, could also avoid escalation, have lines of communication to talk things out before misinterpreting each other. On the positive side... The last question on China here is, you mentioned climate. Um, we're also coming up to a, another COP conference, the annual UN-sponsored conference on climate change. The U.S. just put a bunch of money uh, into clean energy over the next decade. Is there any potential horizon for the U.S. and China getting back together on climate? That That's how we got to the Paris Agreement in the Obama years. It doesn't feel like that dialogue's really made a lot of headway recently, but do you, do you see potential for collaboration on climate? 
Well, President Biden, the administration should be congratulated for the, the statecraft and the political craft of getting the so-called Inflation Reduction Act through and all the little Christmas trees which exist under that strange title. Yeah, it's more the Climate Change Reduction Act. But yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you could say that. I couldn't possibly yeah, comment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you now have the instruments in place to deliver uh, lower American greenhouse gas emissions of an order of magnitude. Yeah. And that's what's good about it. And I congratulate the administration for doing it, given it's fashionable in this country to criticize the administration yes. for everything. Yeah. So on the China front, a couple of quick points. China is acting domestically on climate change because not because they love America, not because they like me, uh, not because they respect um, Ben Rhodes' podcast. Um, it's because they've done the science domestically and they accept it that unless they do act and the rest of the world acts, it's terrible for China. Yeah. And that is the environmental and economic consequences for the country, food security, natural disasters, the rest, all the things we talk about worldwide are just, if not more, applicable internally for them. And report after scientific report in their country dictates the same. That's why, despite the um, collapse of the US-China relationship structurally over the last five years, there you have climate change action entrenched into the 14th five-year plan as its central organizing principle, which means decarbonization, the, the mass expansion of renewable energy production, energy efficiency programs, and huge technology investments along the same. It's not enough, but given where they were when I first encountered the Chinese back when you were working for President Obama at the Copenhagen conference in 2009, oh, yeah, yeah. they have moved uh, a million miles. Yeah. So I think China continues to act. I think also below the radar, uh, the Americans and the Chinese already know through the year and a half of constructive work between Secretary Kerry on the one hand and Xi Jinhua on the other, his Chinese counterpart. They know what they need to do, and I think their teams are separately working on that anyway in terms of their bilateral collaboration to take the next conference of the parties to the necessary next stage. It's not ideal where we are at the moment, but I, I am not in the hand-rigging corner which says, oh, woe is me. Yeah. That's the end of climate change action. It's more complex than that. Yeah. Well, John Kerry's irrepressible optimism, I think, is is very beneficial in this circumstance to just find spaces of overlap and climate And energy. How, yeah, do, yeah. how does John Kerry keep doing it? I, yeah. I, last time I saw him was in Glasgow, and, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not boasting to say I'm like, I don't know, 30 years younger than John Kerry, and he has about... 30 times more energy than I do. I just don't understand whatever his diet is. I need it. Um, yeah, he stuns me. I mean, I, it's I, I'm reasonably active. I'm not as old as him. Oh, no. Like, I'm in my early 60s. But I look at this guy and I think, my God, how yeah. does he do it? But you're right. It's irrepressible uh, enthusiasm and irrepressible energy uh, to get stuff done. But I've got to say, Xie Jinhui's counterpart, yeah. who should have retired a long time ago, uh, Lausier, as I call him, also has energy for this because he gets the science and he knows it's real. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's what I think is good about these two individuals. Yeah. Well, let's hope let's hope we can root for that uh, cooperation. One last question we're going to ask you, just because we've uh, we've had a lot of fun over the years at the expense of people like Tony Abbott and Scott Morrison. Uh, the Australian uh, Liberal Party seemed to put up the kind of politicians that were very easy to to make fun of here on Pod Save the World. Um, and also made, I wonder why. made for appropriate <laughs> foils because they were, you know, for instance, thwarting action on climate, among other things. But we have a, 
a new government um, in Prime Minister Albanese and the new climate plan. And what, what is your uh, early assessment of uh, of this new Australian government? How, what, what's the most important thing for people who listen to this who probably are supportive of, of those politics uh, as we're looking at, at what's happening in Canberra? You know, Australia and the United States are not dissimilar in all this. The Europeans look at Americans and Australians and say, what is it about your countries because you're so divided on climate? Uh, the, Rupert Murdoch. <laughs> and I was about to say, <laughs> yeah, a couple yeah. of answers. Yeah. One starts with R and ends with M. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and Fox News in this country, and the fact he owns 70% of the print media in my country means that it's day-to-day, hand-to-hand combat, trench warfare, uh, with mortars and shells flying on this yeah. question. Yeah. So it's just bloody campaigning. But... My party, the Australian Labor Party, won the last election on a robust commitment to bring down greenhouse gas emissions by 43% by 2030. Um, and uh, they have legislated now the machinery and the funding necessary to do that. They got it through the Senate. When I tried to do this more than a decade ago, we lost it in the Senate by one vote. Mm-hmm. So we're a decade late in terms of what we should be doing. So full marks to them on that. It's a big renewable energy transformation. Uh, and they're doing so remarkably because the climate minister, Chris Bowen, who's also the energy minister, uh, has forged a coalition between business, organized labor, and the environmental movement. So for the last time, Rupert Murdoch to one side, there's a coalition yeah. across all the affected groups to just get this done. So it's good to have the Australians back uh, in the game. It's been a long time absent. Uh, as we've had Conan the Barbarian as the last uh, Australian Prime Minister responsible for climate change. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And prior to that, Conan the Barbarian Mark I. Yeah. <laughs> and, so, uh, and so it's good that they're there to be able to work uh, with the United States on this. Um, and you've got uh, John Podesta back in harness as well. Yeah, which you know he knows he'll know how to make sure that the resources uh, and the regulatory framework are, are brought to bear. Uh, implementation is uh, one of his many skills. Well, look, uh, this is a great conversation. Uh, everybody should check out uh, The Avoidable War. If you want to avoid a war, you should you should read that book. Um, it does overlap with the agenda of, of pod saving the world. Um, and uh, and we look uh, forward who is, to- Who is pod, by the way? Uh, I don't know. Is, is it a person? Uh, it's a, the listeners is oh, how right. I think about it. <laughs> it's not going to be me. It's not going to be Tommy. I think it's, uh, it has its origins in Asimov somewhere. It's yeah. kind of early science fiction. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's a good way of thinking about pod. it. Could all get into a pod and, and <laughs> save the world. Um, but look, thanks for being here and we'll uh, keep in touch and uh, keep following your stuff. Thanks, Ben. And all the best with Pod Save the World. Thanks again to uh, Prime Minister Rudd, one of our, just a fantastic guest every time. Great guest. Uh, thanks to the Irish Dancing Club. You know. Yeah, we, we're just weird, just weird. All the, all, the, all the chess fans out there. Anyway, we got to beat Bolsonaro. If you're Brazilian and you're listening to this, please go. Yeah, like knock on doors, go to the Vote Save Brazil. Or, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, like just do whatever you can whatever do. Whatever it takes. Please, we really don't need to deal with Bolsonaro. No, no more. Uh, all right, talk to you next week. See ya. Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our producer is Haley Muse. Saul Rubin is our associate producer. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, and Amelia Montooth, who upload our episodes and videos at youtube.com slash crookedmedia. <laughs>
Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.